for September 17th, 2018. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 533. It'll make sense when we start playing. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out together, enjoying the pastimes we love uh, in communion with our oldest and best group of friends. Uh, I'm Matt Rather, your host, and I am with my oldest and best group of friends, including uh, Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hey, Matt, that's such a nice thing to say. Appreciate it. Uh, oh, absolutely. It's, it's, probably, it's probably true. <laughs> Mark Lee. <laughs> I hope it's true. I really do. It's, it's, good to, it's good to be back on the podcast Matt, after being away. Uh, and Jordan Stokes joins us. Hello, Jordan. It's a pleasure to have you back. I feel like I have a very convenient name alphabetically to be like the uh, the and sometimes why of this podcast <laughs> because I can I can come in at the end after everyone normal has been introduced. I mean, I feel like and sometimes why has two has two meanings. It's like and sometimes why because it sometimes works like a vowel. It's also and sometimes why. <laughs> and the why is because we like you just like in the uh the mickey mouse club i mean i guess as a uh as a group of friends um this is uh, and overthinking it is probably a big reason for this but like this is this is one that has been remarkably cohesive in my life like i have older friends i have friends from high school and not friends from college like like you folks but uh i i don't hang out in groups with them like partly because we don't have a website with a with a podcast that we do weekly and to talk to each other on that that sort of regular basis so it's probably it's probably true with the caveat that I mean group of I mean group of friends, not the the oldest person you know that any of us is acquainted with that we would call a friend in uh, in our life. But speaking of that, speaking of getting together and doing the podcast, this is episode five hundred thirty three of the Overthinking It podcast. Uh, now, if you were to break that down mathematically, it would be thirteen. Plus 52 times 10, which means that by a certain calculation of, you know, anniversary, this podcast that we're doing now is the 10th anniversary overthinking it podcast. Oh my goodness. Can you believe that? Congratulations. Uh, congratulations, guys. It's amazing that we've, we've kept it on this long. And congratulations, everyone who's listened, especially if you've listened from the beginning. I know there are people out there, or God help you, brave souls, who started listening to the podcast and then went back to the beginning. Because, uh, you know, as I'm, I was fond of saying early on, they, they weren't all gems back, back then as we were learning how to do it. I feel like we got, we got better, though. Do you, are you, do you guys feel old? You know, do you feel like... Uh, <laughs> we've certainly made more weekly podcasts than almost every weekly podcast that's popular. We, just in terms of sheer tonnage of podcasting, we, we've got more under our belts than most people. I mean, I got to stretch more regularly before the podcast every week, but other than that, it's pretty much the same. <laughs> yeah, I, do, I have a podcast foam roller, and I just spend like <laughs> half an hour on that after every episode. After every episode that we do, um, I, and the news recently heard a lot about how this is the tenth anniversary of various milestones of the financial crisis have come and gone. Most recently, I think uh, the fall of Lehman Brothers. Um, so, I, part of me likes to think that Lehman Brothers had to die so that the overthinking podcast. <laughs> Could live for ten years. It's That's probably, what it it's, was. It's That's probably, what it was. <laughs> it's probably a good trade-off, right? I mean, what was Lehman Brothers if not just um, uh, sucking out the the very lifeblood of the American economy? Well, them and all the other banks, I suppose. Hey yo. Um, but no, I think the more serious point to make is that the world has changed a lot. Not we have we have gotten older, yes, but the world has changed a lot over the last ten years since we started this. Um, from the political climate. Um, for reasons which are obvious and shouldn't be said, uh, unless we go on a no tangent on that, um, but also the pop culture climate, um, the nature of superhero movies, um, fandom, fan culture, and internet discourse on it. Um, a, a lot of these things, I would say, have changed for the worse. 
um, since the simple days when we could like write some smart articles about the Dark Knight and uh, have a lot of fun conversations about it. And I think that like this is how the world just should be. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> it used to be that we could be like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we were really, really into old movies from the 80s? And then Ready Player One came along and wrecked that for literally everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we started the Overthinking of Podcast uh, in 2008. But we went weekly with episode 13, which I believe was called Between Platform Nine and Three Quarters and Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. Is that the one? I don't know. I'm talking and I'll, I'll get all awkward as I sometimes do if I try to Google it while I, um, while I say try to keep up the conversation. In fact, even thinking of doing that has forced me to stutter and stammer. But maybe someone, ah, I hear the clicking of someone going back to see what Overthinking a Podcast episode 13 is. And uh, we went weekly with that episode. So this isn't the you know uh, 520th podcast. This is 520 plus 13. Now, we have climbed high enough, however, that we can see the curvature of the earth. Here's what I mean by that. A, uh, a year... 365 days is not 52 weeks. It's 52 weeks in a day. It's 52 and one seventh of a week. And in the time, in the 10 years that we've been doing this podcast weekly, um, the calculus that I usually use, which is uh, 13, and it's not calculus, it's algebra, but I mean the method of calculation that I usually use, which is 13 plus 52n, right, is, uh, has become inadequate because there are 10 days between now between that number and the actual, uh, the actual podcast. It's actually 13 days. It seems like uh, the first annual, the first weekly Overthinking a Podcast was on September 29th, 2008. Crossing sections off the map yep. is, is what That's it was. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was, and and I think that referred to us alienating uh, geographic regions in turn. Uh, not us, Matt. I believe it was you specifically. <laughs> no, I thought it was me. Come on, oh, give me was some credit it you? Here, guys. Maybe it was yeah. us. Maybe it was all of us. Okay, fair enough. I'll Dude. take some responsibility. <laughs> at this point, we are all collectively responsible for all of this that has been said yes. on the podcast. So Look, we own it all together, guys. Yeah, you've you've known me for two decades, Pete. If you let me get close to a microphone, you know you're at least a little bit responsible for what happened in the aftermath um so uh yeah and and uh here we here we are with this podcast so we'll we'll uh mention it again in two weeks on the episode that we record on september 30th and you will get on october 1st uh because that will be the closest to the actual calendar anniversary but thank you for listening if you've if you've done it for 10 years or if you've done it for 10 episodes or if you've done it for 10 minutes which is how long we've been talking about this uh thank you very much it's it's a really neat really neat milestone to pass and and uh, though i get sort of teased for it uh sometimes by the members the writers and podcasters of overthinking it i like commemorating these things because if you don't pop a bottle of champagne every now and again you risk making every day just another day at the office just another day at the podcasting office so wait, what separated this announcement about it being the 10-year anniversary from like any previous one is that this one was corrected to account for leap year. Is that is that what I was following? Oh, I guess yeah. There are two. There are two leap years, right? That's why it's 13 days. Uh, there are two leap years, or or yeah, um, or wait, no, because 2000. Oh, I don't know. I have to I have to figure out the math. Um, We'll 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 figure it out and get back to you. Oh, I know. It's because it's not the sixteenth. This one goes out on the seventeenth. So there are there are uh, twelve days between the you know algebraic <laughs> anniversary of the podcast and the calendar anniversary of the podcast. Ten of those days accounted for by uh, the imprecision in 52 weeks per year, and two of those days accounted for by two leap years. Thank you for that, Jordan. You have well actually me uh, in the fine tradition of the overthinking a paradox, podcast. A paradox, a paradox, a paradox, and so on. And it goes on for... <laughs> Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, mo- moving on. So uh, we've been exempting ourselves, excusing ourselves from the grind of 
uh, of watching summer movies, largely because there there haven't been many to watch, um, and and we're we're skipping the Predator movie. Though members of Overthinking It, uh, people who support us, uh, can get a question of the week that has to do with the Predator that is in the digital library, the members area, and you can stream that from the webpage. Um, in the digital library. And instead, we've been casting around for sort of more general uh, topics that we can talk about. And what we settled on this week is board games. Now, we've already done a podcast about game night. Uh, but board games, I think, considered as a separate topic, is a is a totally new angle on this, and has <laughs> has nothing to do with our previous uh, previous episode at all. So what what is uh, what is a board game? Well, uh, a board game is a tabletop game that involves counters or pieces moved or placed <laughs> on a pre-marked surface or board according to a set of rules. And some games are based on pure strategy, but many contain an element of chance, and some are purely chance with no element of skill. Now, this has been an episode of Matt Rather Reads Wikipedia Theater. <laughs> now... I'm given to understand that games usually have a goal that a player aims to achieve. And I use that word achieve advisedly. Okay, stop this right now. <laughs> please, please stop. <laughs> okay, so somebody suggested board games as a thing to talk about. And I think that one fruitful way to begin this discussion is why do we think that board games are worth talking about? Um, there, there was something that I thought was really interesting when it came up in like the in the back channel as something that we might want to talk about. But I think, Mark, it was you who pitched board games, right? And I'm curious, what is it to you that made board games seem like the thing to talk about this week? Sure. Um, it's a couple of things. One is there seems to be a bit of a renaissance of board games over the last, say, decade or so, where I think like uh, we transitioned from uh, sort of younger adults who have childhood memories of playing classic board games like Monopoly and the Game of Life and Candyland and so on and so forth. And then we became uh, older adults who, um, for various reasons, uh, started to choose like more chill evening and social activities that don't involve like going to the bar and getting wasted and instead involving inviting people over to do uh, slightly more adult things. And somehow those things included board games, like the most recent renaissance of things. Um, if you go back to the Overthinking It podcast uh, archives in 2014, we were talking about Settlers of Catan, which was a few years old by that point. But uh, I think is was, was part of that sort of vanguard of, of board games, uh, of, of new board games coming out that had a, a higher level of sophistication, uh, more strategy. For whatever reason, just were capturing more of the popular imagination. So there's that piece of it. Um, they are more popular than ever um, and uh, increasingly diverse in their types and in their popularity and, 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 and so on and so forth. Um, but the other thing uh, that I think makes board games we're talking about is like the narratives that we create around board games, um, particularly uh, this newer crop of things like Settlers Gatan and maybe even like Ticket to Ride, um, which allow for more sort of a storytelling around it, um, both within the game and as well as the social interactions that you have with the game. Um, and, uh, as such, like they become sort of, you know, a, a, a unique and participatory part of the popular culture. So that's why I want to talk about board games. So wait, when you say like the, the stories you tell around it, is this like when you're playing settlers of Catan, which I've done this a couple of times, it's sort of a resource gathering game where you try to get a certain number of sheep and a certain number of wood mm -hmm. and you build towns. And at the end, you add up a score and you're told whether like whether you're a good uh, a good 18th century colonist or not or something like that. Right. Um, yeah. Are you are you sort of thinking of an elaborate backstory for your particular farmer or whatever it would be? Or is it a different kind of storytelling that you mean? Less backstory and more sort of within the context of the game, um, thinking about like my moves in the game and my interactions with other players, like scaled out to a, 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 a struggle among civilizations. Um, I have the same thing that goes on when I play the game Civilization, which has come up many times on this podcast, um, where, you know, as I move my uh, armies around the map and I build cities and things like that, like, I imagine this in the grand sweep of history as, like, things that are actually happening with, with Interesting. people. Interesting. So, like, yeah, a you, thing that you, can you happen... Guys, you guys don't do that? 
A thing that can happen in Catan is that like you can there's like a thief, right? And if a thief gets placed on your land, then you don't get any benefit from the land that turn or something yeah. vaguely like uh-huh. that. So when that happens to you, you don't think like, oh nuts, like I get one less point on my card. You think that jerk stole my sheep. And you get like <laughs> you actually imagine the the thievery that's going on. There's there's no other way to play this game, George. <laughs> <laughs> That's precisely I, I, why we play this game. I, I would say that I do what Mark's talking about all the time, but but with far less of a justification by the narrative that's provided by the game, right? So, like, merely having many sheep cards will cause me to begin to spin a narrative of, like, why I have so many sheep. And so I'm over <laughs> here. I'm hanging out with the sheep, right? You know, uh, we just – we write a lot of pastoral music around here. You know, it's very – it's we're all into that ideal lifestyle. It's kind of an artisanal thing. You know, it's like I know other people are involved in other things, but we're kind of – we figured out what we're good at. And we're like sticking with it, which is why I have seven sheep in my hand right now, and I haven't traded them in for anything else. Or like, <laughs> do you ever? Does, does the narrative ever get so out of control that you're like, you know, the other people are playing according to the rules to try to maximize their score, but Lord Fenzel went mad years ago and only cares for <laughs> sheep. My game is to collect as many sheep as I can possibly collect. He's, be- he's become the, the he's become the Tony Montana of sheep. I would see like to hold up in his <laughs> wider uh, range or sort of like a few more degrees of abstraction. I would also say, yes, if you are losing in a board game, you have little to do other than narrativize your loss, right? And finds, I mean, that's what life is about, right? Is coping, finding narratives to cope with loss is like a big part of what life is all about. <laughs> the board game podcast has gotten yeah. too real. Okay, so let me tell you, you want to get real. Let's talk about sorry. You ever play sorry? <laughs> right? Like, what? The, you guys, are, I'll, I'll raise that question. Have you ever played Sorry? Have ever stopped playing Sorry? (laughs) (laughs) Now, Sorry, there's a particular card in Sorry that I think is the most narratively charged card in Sorry. And, I mean, there's a couple of them. I'll I'll, I'll raise this. Does anyone have a candidate that they want to volunteer as the most narratively charged game? And, by the way, Sorry is a sort of a spiced-up Parcheesi variant, is how I would describe it, wherein you move – each person has four pegs that you're trying to move around a board. And when you collide with other players, you knock them off under certain circumstances. And you have to say, Sorry, and they have to start from the beginning, right? Sorry Uh, is Parcheesi with water slides. It's it's excellent. Yes. It is. It is. Excellent. So so what for you is the most narratively charged sorry card? I do not remember the game with sufficient okay. specificity. Uh, the, the, one, the one where Tony Montana portray, betrays everyone around him yes, and dies yes, in a place yes. of Corey. There's just a I giant there's just a peg sitting behind a giant pile of cocaine. No, that is not a card in sorry, though it is a state of mind. Uh there's um there's a few. There's the sorry card, which I is the sort of obvious answer where you get to go and knock somebody else off the board. And then there is the eleven card, which lets you switch places with somebody else, which can be very narratively charged. But I would maintain, and and of course, maybe my memory here is a little bit off. I I don't think so, though, that the most narratively charged is it's more likely that the game of Sorry has changed than that my memory of this has any less indelible than it was. Nah, nah, Pete. The game of Sorry hasn't changed. It just got more fierce. (laughs) There it is. There it is. But the four card, right? There's a four card, which allows you to, which forces you to move something backwards four pieces, four spaces. And uh, this seems like it's a generally bad, but it allows you to basically skip the entire board, right? By moving, but if you come right out of your, of your gate and you move back four, you end up right in front of your finish line, I believe. And, and so that, that for me, narrativizing it is like, the last shall be first and the first shall be last, right? Like, what is it that this peg has done that it has failed so hard that it has endeavored upon success, like, so completely, right? It's this, it's almost like it, it makes me feel like you're switching the blood so that it's pumping up your arteries and down your veins. There's just this sense that you're cracking the fabric of reality when you play the four card and you end up, like, moving backwards in order to move forwards. There's this, it's this, it's not quite a koan because you're not really comprehending the irreconcilable conflict so much as experiencing the deep and shattering irony of it. Uh, so I would say, yes, I narrativize every board game that I play. <laughs> well, wait, I mean, like the, the there's narrativizing the board games and then there's sort of narrativizing the social interaction around the board games. So let me as a person who does not really play board games, tabletop games, all sorts, really, um, 
let me ask a question. Uh, are board games fundamentally competitive enterprises or are they in some way fundamentally cooperative enterprises? Well, I'll answer that in a moment, but just you brought up the competitive versus cooperative dynamic that there's actually, I think it's a newer uh, sort of branch of subgenre of board games, which are explicitly cooperative, where right, you actually where, play, where, play together against the rules of it. Like a most prominent example of which is probably Pandemic, which is exactly what it sounds like. You're like a team of researchers that is trying to stop a global pandemic. Um, and it's super fun. I highly recommend it. Um, yeah, but, you're trying uh, to... I just wanted, all... I did, yeah, yeah, I want to put it out there that pri- that there is this whole thing that's just explicitly cooperative, um, as opposed to like you know playing against each other and only one shall rise as a victor. Um, but it, among those that broader uh, typical type of board game, um, I, I'm I'm definitely going to go with competitive, and it's not just about um, winning, but how you play. I'm uh-huh. going to put that out there and see if that resonates with anybody before I try to try to try to back that up. But for myself. so if it, if it's a like if you have a some other couples over or something like that and like we're going to have a, a board game night together oh god now we're doing the old podcast cuz it's about game night right yep, like yep. do you feel do you feel about those other couples like ah we're going to engage in a in a cooperative activity to you know divert ourselves and and uh i don't know stave off thoughts of mortality or whatever it is for you right and uh or uh is it like we will crush the McGillicuddies, right? Like, do you go, do you go into it with your partner feeling feeling really really competitive, right? I mean, I gotta think that with a board game, you gotta include the board. Is is that? Am I? Well, I, crazy? I'm, I I mean, I'm the board with most board games, right? Because uh, I am, they bore me. But the uh... <laughs> <Dear> <laughs> Lord. I, I, I would say, Matt. However, you choose to act. Uh, around other people i would uh, certainly modern board games you know with all their fancy narratives about germans conquering empty islands and people farming in the middle of puerto rico or riding a train that goes to moon while you're in the middle of the french revolution all this other nonsense of the sort of contemporary board games let's let's put aside all of our sort of zima lime spritzers and talk about the real stuff Right. Where it's the board and you got the pegs and you're moving around. Right. And you're trying to make it happen. Uh, and, and I think I think Jordan may have some thoughts about this, but I would suggest that what the board affords you is the precondition that there is a, a there is a striving that is happening of some kind. Whether whether you are in control of it at all or not is not particularly material. Right. Is you have to figure out what your relationship is with the board, but the board game will proceed. And it will proceed towards victory or defeat or maybe a victory for everybody or a failure for everybody, which is gonna be a lot less likely and the game is older. But it's it's like you're you're part of a process that's being defined and that has been codified and and if you want to cope with that by making friends then fine i can also narrativize my pieces i don't know jordan you you, you go ahead you, well i mean I, I think that's interesting socially it's like the board provides a sanitized bubble of sorts in which bloodthirsty competition is fine you know, like playing playing the four card in sorry and in such a way that you skip the entire game uh, might be thought of as against the spirit of fair competition and sort of a, a jerk move or something like that. But because you're playing the game and these are the rules of the game and like within the rules of the game, this is legal. It would actually be your friends who would have stepped out of line if they were to get too upset about it. Right. So that like when you say that there's this sort of. Uh, um, it's like the, the board is a uh, a rope that's pulling you along, or you can think of it as like a uh, a worm gear into which your regular turning gears can kind of like sit and and begin to to twist. Like it does have this social function as well, which is it lets you kind of get out those those bloodthirsty impulses in a way that doesn't involve actual blood. Right. Um, Kind of to turn it back onto what Mark was saying earlier. Yes, there are explicitly cooperative board games, but couldn't you say that those are also competitive in sort of the same way that that conversations are competitive, you know? 
Like I know that uh, I, I must not be the only one who who goes through at the end of uh, you know maybe once a year and goes back to all of the old Overthinking podcasts and see who got the most titles, right? Whose line got all the most titles? <laughs> and in, in a way, this this podcast <laughs> is a blood sport, right? Because we're competing for those sweet sweet uh, signals of validation. So even when you're playing an explicitly cooperative game, you're still in a certain sense trying to do the best, right? And you might not think of that as zero sum, but well, at the end of the day, one person will be the best. So there's a way in which like what the board game is doing and what the social space is doing in terms of competition are, are not actually like strictly tied. Yeah. Like for example, I mean, I think, I think to really philosophize about board games, you got to strip it all the way down to Candyland. Right. <laughs> Candyland is Candyland. Okay, go on, go on. I mean, Jordan, you know, I know what you're going to say about Candyland, right? Which is that Candyland is an algorithm that requires no human participation, right? Yes, the, like, the Candyland is a board, but it is not a game. But it is a board game, I would suggest, in the sense that if it it will be on the board game shelf, and if you decide to play a board game, Candyland is an option. However, however postmodern that might be, right? So, <laughs> so for those of you not familiar, there's a board game. Maybe it's not a game. Maybe it's just a board and a series of illustrations and cards, wherein you go on a magical journey through the land of candy. And every turn, you draw a card that has a color square on it, and the path in front of you is of many colors. And so, when you draw a card with the color score on it, you move to the next square of that color. Now, there are things that can happen to you. You can get stuck in the gumdrop swamp, or you can ride the rainbow over to the other thing, or whatever other you know, twee nonsense is in this, in this particular <laughs> board game. Uh, and I've played a lot of freaking Candyland so, uh, in my life. But, but you have no decisions to make. You, it, every player just draws the card and moves and draws the card and moves. And, and the, the game, you might even suggest that the, the game is, the outcome of the game is predetermined, though it is not known. Uh, and yet, there is a sense, a narrative to it of this person's ahead, this person's behind. I hope I get them. Oh, I hope they don't get me, right? There's this, yeah. there's this drama to it. You feel often, oh, I only have a short amount of time left to catch up, right? And that you feel that urgency when you have only a little bit of time left, even though whether you're going to catch up has been set in stone since the beginning of the game. You know, it's very Calvinist in that sense. Yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think – so the thing that I was thinking about that I thought uh, when Mark suggested board games and I was like, oh, yes, let's absolutely talk about this, is that I – sort of asked myself, well, wait, what counts as a board game? And I had this thought that, well, stuff like Candyland totally counts. And then I was like, yeah, chess probably doesn't count. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. I mean, that's it's definitely a board game. If you go on to the uh, the board game wiki, like chess will be listed there. Then I, I thought, well, yeah, but it's it's not the same. Clue counts. Clue is like almost archetypal for what a, a board game would be. Does a risk count? And then I like sat and thought about risk for a long time and decided that like on the whole it probably didn't, but that my definition was getting to be nonsense. So this is the thing that interests me is like the although I would say that honestly all of them, including chess, are board games, like they're games you play on boards. Evidently there's some kind of subset of that, like that I think of as the core true definition of what a board game is. And I'm not quite sure what it what it is what makes the difference. But I think it might be that like to really be a board game for me, you need to have a, a piece that is you that is on the path. And you think of what's happening to that piece, the travails that it's falling into, you know, the licorice swamp or whatever as being stuff that's happening to you. Whereas when I'm playing chess, like I'm the general and all of those other pieces are my pieces, but like, there's never a sense that I'm the one that's getting captured. Well, aren't you, I mean, aren't you the king in chess and the king that, which is like why the king gets knocked over. And that's your allegorical death in the, at the end of a game. Game of chess when you lose arguably sure so maybe checkers is a better better example right I, we're that, like yeah that, i mean that's that's interesting what where my mind went when you said that when you started kind of doing that 
the place that my mind went was to a continuum of constraint on outcome, right? You can argue that at one level is Candyland. It's not strictly speaking Calvinist because like the outcome wasn't determined. There is a time, there is a time when there, when all outcomes are possible with Candyland, but once you shuffle the cards and put them, put them down on the board at that point, the outcome is determined. Unlike, you know, the, your, the predestination of your soul, which has been sort of known for all time uh, and has been well, ordained. So actually, whether whether there's any freedom when you're shuffling the cards in Candyland depends upon how you feel about Calvinism. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess uh, I guess about determinism, you know, determinism in general or, or free will in general, as opposed to something like chess where there are, you know, exponentially upon exponentially upon exponentially many um, possible outcomes uh, possible outcomes to games. I, I also think that there is a corresponding continuum of self-expression, you know, where in, in chess, there is, there is a sense in which not, not only, I mean, you're not, there's no peace. I mean, if I, if I stipulate, uh, the, the point that you're trying to make that there's no peace in chess, that is you, right? But the, the, the chess playing, right? Like the, the player, the kind of the, the style of the pieces moving all together, uh, is you, right? And different people, you know, can have, because there's less constraint, um, on the path to an outcome, um, because you're less on rails, right? And so I was going to suggest, uh, before you said the piece that is you, um, requirement. I was going to suggest that maybe there was like, there was a sort of anthropic principle. There's a board game anthropic principle, right? Where there is like a narrow range on that, um, on that continuum of constraint where you, uh, where we think of the classic the classical board games right like an and clue is an interesting clue is an interesting thing uh interesting test case in in that regard i think i wonder could there could these two things actually be connected so that like chess is very expressive in that as a chess player you know as a, a chess master or a a pitifully non-master of chess as i am you can sort of use the all of the different chess moves to express yourself right in within a certain kind of constrained repertoire of behaviors and you can play defensively you can play aggressively you can play in kind of a a silly joking manner if you're good enough and the other person understands what you're doing right um do something like move move a pawn forward one square on your first move and move that same pawn forward one square on the second move. Whereas if I'm playing Candyland, all that I can do is take the cards and therefore in order for it to be entertaining to me at all, I have to read in, read myself into my guy on the board, right? Like absent a expressive space for play, I will make myself a narrative space for play. Yeah, I, I am the thimble. <laughs> by, by the way, if you are the king in chess, the narrative of chess is very boring because you do nothing for most of the game. You just sit there and hope you don't die while everybody else around you is killing each other. So if that's the way that it works, I would definitely say that, like, if, if, you, if you were to rank the quality of life of various board game representations of a person, I would say that, like, the king probably feels really bad about himself most of the time because he doesn't get to do anything and he just sits there. Although every other piece thinks they have it worse than the king does, except for maybe the bishops and the queen. But but like the sorry piece, I think they're kind of jerks, right? They, they have a sort of left, left ethics behind and are living in a kind of... Uh, uh, I want to compare it to an ice cream chain from New England called Brigham's, where it's like children, stuff, and bright primary colors has created almost this weird hyper reality uh, which i'm sure you've seen in other places too and that's kind of a hexscape of its own uh, i mean what what do there any uh if we're if part of if what we're saying is that because of course we have to make some sort we're making a lot of distinctions here on one end there are games like roulette right which is like sort of a board game 
in like there's a board right and then there are pieces that you move on the board basically gambling is kind of the uh the kind of ur space from which board games come because that's where you've got things like things like mahjong that are kind of really on the edge, right? And like, uh, but various card games and dice games and and stuff like that. Um, and, and that's gambling, right? And then there's then there's board games kind of pull out of that and give you the kind of no, the notional space of the board as a thing to interact with, but don't give you money or winnings as an extrinsic value to associate with playing, and thus like sort of prompt you through various sorts of other kinds of framing to create other stories to justify and explain and, and interact with and feel alongside what is happening. And then like you can move past that to games that are even more elaborate and the more contemporary games where you're you're really employing a lot of design philosophy and building really curated experiences. So like when you play Ticket to Ride, they're they want you to you're building a train and it's going from Los Angeles to Seattle to Chicago to New York and the different cars have different little painstaking illustrations and you have little itinerary cards and they're printed differently and there's lots of little aspects to the game that are meant to kind of frame and inform your experience of it but i think what we're talking about here is this sort of rough space in the middle where it's not instrumental you're not playing it to make money and you're not playing it for the thrill of making or losing money and it's not sort of like fully intrinsic in the sense that the game comes with an explanation for why it's happening right but more like where it sort of does right like how everybody can play monopoly but no but without ever really being aware of the point that it's supposedly trying to make uh because the game is not designed in such a way that you have to feel what it wants you to feel um i guess and and, and parcheesi even more so <laughs> where it's like uh i mean i don't even know if parcheesi is supposed to have a story although i guess it's supposed to have gambling parcheesi and backgammon are right there on the cusp I suppose. Uh, so, yeah, so you're kind of saying that there's there's some games that don't really make you feel things. There's some games that are designed to they're like all the way down to make you feel very carefully. But that there's lots of games that we think of as classic games that although they probably weren't designed to do this, do still have sort of narrative elements, ethical elements, storytelling elements that uh, that make you think things like a Parcheesi piece is kind of a jerk vis a vis a chess king or something like that. Right, right, right. And it's like on a continuum. And and there's a lot where they give you like a little bit. Do you guys uh, we had those uh, like sort of Disney games. We had one for the television show Dinosaurs, right, where there was like a pop up baby, you know, not the mama. Gotta love me. Right. And and, and you the uh, the game had sort of three dimensional elements where you would move the pieces kind of up and down little folding stairs. And there would be like sometimes there's like really elaborate rules to games like this, but they really try to create. A, uh, a, a kind of a setting, right? Uh, there's a whole series of these Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast from this era in the 90s that uh, where it's like uh, trying to add this element of storytelling to a board game, which is a, a basically like math, but uh, that you experience and that by giving it giving a little bit of theme, right, you give it a little bit of flavor. It sets the mind loose to, to imagine more and to experience more. Uh, I mean, what what I, what do you guys feel about cribbage? I guess that's that's sort of a board game, right? You move along a board, <laughs> um, but it's through playing cards, right? And so it doesn't have, give you that sense, that same sense. That's sort of like very, very far in the sort of non-narrative direction of board games. Uh, I don't know. I've, well, never, I've never I've never played cribbage. I'm wondering if that's like a sort of a generational thing where uh, you know the, the 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 younger folks coming up these days are are too glued to their phones to play. Uh, it's such an old timey thing. I mean, I remember there was a game that I played a ton of uh, growing up. I think it was called Captain Skyhawk. I could be wrong about oh, that. Oh, yeah. Anyway, it was like uh, it was an air combat game where you got certain cards that allowed you to move your plane in certain ways or to attack other planes in certain ways. So this was, again, moving pieces by playing cards, but it was very intensely narrative. Um, you know, th- there was never a like uh, volleyball chapter, but like the dogfight felt very storytelling-ish. And when someone got in behind you and you couldn't get away, you felt like, ah, they got me. So I don't think that the the mechanism, whether it's cards or dice or something like that, is really decisive. Again, it had a lot of flavor text. And you could have done it could have been exactly the same game with uh with like you know, knights jousting each other or uh two people who are both trying to serve each other papers in a particularly acrimonious divorce. Uh, it happened to be air combat, and that's the way that I remember it. 
Now, I think of Captain Skyhawk as a video game, but looking at oh, up, yeah, this a, is a different game. This well, is a it's a, game, it's a video game made by Milton Bradley. <laughs> so I did not know this that the Captain Skyhawk video game is made by Milton Bradley, which is a board game company. Uh, so, so maybe it had a different name, but I feel like we're we're falling into the vortex now, and I don't know what's real anymore. Uh, <laughs> but th- this notion that sometimes people will take a game, which is sort of um, there is a simple mathematical construct that you can reduce the game to, and then they'll sort of apply flavor to it, right? This is something that I know in academic circles, there's like, there are game studies people, and they talk about uh, ludology, and there's sort of the game element, the ludic element, and the narrative element, and sometimes these things are kind of intimately tied, and like any good structuralist definition, it doesn't really hold up if you poke at it enough. But there are other places where it seems very, uh, very clear that these things are are separate and have been added sort of separately. One of the earliest games that was published in the U.S. apparently, and this is again in the Wikipedia article if you keep on going down, is something called The Game of Pope and Pagan or The Siege of the Stronghold of Satan by the Christian Army, published in 1844. (laughs) And what this is is Nine Men's Morris. That's all that it is. Except that the uh, the white pieces are the Protestant American Christians, and the black pieces representing you know all that is wrong with the world are alternately the natives or the Catholics that you're trying to defeat. And there's like a lengthy explanation of why Manifest Destiny is good, and then it's Nine Men's Morris. <laughs> so this has been going on for a while, I guess. So I learned Nine Men's Morris in the Sierra game. Robin Hood Conquests of the Longbow, which I'm definitely talked about on the podcast before, which was a Robin Hood game by the makers of King's Quest, which had very which had you had to win games of nine men's Morris in order to progress the game at various points. So I, I don't know. I think a couple times I've tried to play nine men's Morris on an actual board with people, but it's just sort of like, OK, so nine men's Morris then turns around and becomes the origin of the modern video game in America is what we're saying right here. What's the name? What's the long form name of this game? again jordan just so that i remember it the game of pope and pagan comma or the siege of the stronghold of satan by the christian army (laughs) more board games should have or in their title this this is really interesting um i want to take us in a slightly different direction to see where this goes in that um when uh, earlier we were talking about this like idea of a board game and renaissance and you know and there's actually data that backs this up which shows that uh, over the last like 15 20 years or so the number of new board games that have been coming out at least like sales of board games has increased quite a bit um so board game renaissance is a real thing but i was trying to like map a narrative onto that because that seems to be what we're talking about here mapping narrative on the things and and trying to come up with an explanation which is that oh i don't know somehow like technology um computer-aided design of these games has enabled um, more sophisticated storytelling around it, or maybe how, like, you know, after years of stagnation, um, you know, uh, again, sort of aided by technology, or perhaps influenced by video games, um, board game designers wanted to create something that's uh, that has more of these narrative trappings, like a Settler's Catan or a Pandemic, or something like that. Um, that theory kind of is shattered to pieces by discovering that the game of Pope and Pagan or the Siege of Stronghold Satan by the Christian Army <laughs> existed over 100 years ago. That being said, I still want to explore a little bit of this idea that somehow technology, specifically video games, and like a much more uh, presentational rather than abstract version of storytelling and interactive entertainment might have something to do with the current crop of games. Like, you know, moving towards something like a pandemic and away from something like Sorry or, uh, or, or Monopoly. I mean, I think that the um, the game of Pope and Pagan doesn't really uh, hurt your thesis, because although it does have these elaborate narrative trappings, it's just a reskin of a common domain game that is literally one of the oldest to exist anywhere. So I think that a modern game designer, you know, one of these people that does Catan would be horribly embarrassed if, you know, even if one of their bitter rivals came out with something that was like just chess, but with some, uh, some different different stories, some, some very um, upsetting and racist stories attached to it, right? <laughs> they would be like, you know, so first of all, like, we'll, we'll come to the racism later, but you haven't designed a game here. That's chess, right? Whereas I think that all of these new exciting games, the point is that they're like, they're meant to be new. 
and they're people get excited when it's a kind of game even you know if, if it's just like Catan with some refinements then you're like okay this is fun but I'm not really excited whereas when it's something that is somehow actually recognizably a different kind of play that's when people get really really excited and even if they're like well this game doesn't really work here are the problems with it it's one-sided whatever but this is a really cool idea this mechanic that you've thought up is something that i've never seen in a, in a game before and that kind of um I mean, it, it suggests that we're in kind of an era of modernism for games, right? Where, like, making it new and making it uh, unfamiliar is one of the core values to a certain kind of consumer. Uh, perhaps that at certain points might even trump making it enjoyable. So, you know, it's it's in the uh, the T.S. Eliot, Arnold Schoenberg kind of, uh, kind of territory a little bit, maybe. Mm. Of, uh, uh, of way, Ezra, I, I, oh, Ezra Pound there with his sash saying, make it new. Right, like that's that's the highest good artistically. Yeah, yeah speaking of upsetting racism, but <laughs> I was going to say, I hope you all play my new game, which is called "Me and My Fifteen Best Bros Totally Kill That Idiot Klaus Teuber," <laughs> which is uh, it, it's got a picture of Settlers of Catan on the front and a whole bunch of chess pieces, wearing awesome like leather jackets, just beating it up. Right, and so it's it's chess is what it is. But but you see, you're the awesome dude with the fifteen best bros, and you're against the other evil king, which is Klaus Teuber, the designer of Settlers of Catan, who is sixty six years old, <laughs> and presumably brought fifteen friends, but they're chumps, right? So you're totally going to get them. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Catan, like like ninety published in ninety five, according according to Wikipedia. So it's it's older than than we. It's older than our acquaintance with it is old for sure, right? Yeah, I mean, but, I mean Mark. I, I was going to say, Mark. I think that you play a lot of these new board games, right? I, More I than like most, I think, I, mostly by gateway of like my brother-in-law, who is super into board games and um, kind of craves that novelty that you were describing. So, so yeah, I, I play more yeah. board games than most. So, I mean, do you feel like they're better than than the stuff that you remember from your childhood, or are they just different? It's that's really tough to say because I haven't gone back to play a lot of classic board games. I mean, like you know, it's a common refrain that like Monopoly sucks, and it was not Monopoly was never any good. Then again, like I haven't tried to play it as a more sophisticated adult player, um, which is all I've done as a slightly more sophisticated adult <laughs> and, and coming to these. Um, I, I will say that um, uh, going back to I keep coming back to pandemic, um, which, uh, which I feel like com- uh, presents like a really compelling set of gameplay parameters, um, uh, allows that narrativization um and it also just has like the extra production value and artwork and all those kind of little pieces that make for a more satisfying experience than uh, the stuff I remember growing up. So can you try to explain for us, uh, cutting away all of that aesthetic stuff, what is the game of Pandemic? Like if you, if you tried to make a boring version that was just like with numbers and colors or something like that, uh, what, do you, what do you actually do? Oof. You're putting me on the, on the spot here um, because it's been a while since I played, and the rules are, are, are somewhat complicated. But it, it kind of boils down to uh, taking scarce resources to fight disease and scarce movements to move your uh, characters across the map and and their specific unique abilities, and strategizing then against the randomly generated um, uh, spread of the disease to different geographic areas and like with, with different rapidity. Um, so you're racing against the clock and then you're trying to deploy resources, um, uh, in a, in a very strategic manner. That's interesting. I feel like, uh, the idea of having limited resources and trying to supply them against a sort of random, uh, threat of some kind is something that I can recognize from video games. Like that, that's something that, that you often run into with certain kind of simulation games, right? Yeah, I mean, like uh, uh, a shooter game, <laughs> your scarce resources and ammunition. Yeah, I guess, or like I survival guess. horror in particular, right? Shooters tend to give you enough enough bullets to blow everything up, but survival horror, like you might only have six bullets in the entire game, and then there are seven zombies. Which one are you not going to have to kill, right? Right. Um, so I yeah, do or wonder or maybe if maybe like real strategy games, strategy video games. Yeah. yeah. So plausibly, this is something like a design thing that comes out of video games and then goes back into board games. I mean, I'm sure that like a, a game historian could uh, point to a, a earlier edition of it or something like that. But it certainly makes sense. You know, it makes sense with the information we have in front of us. Sure. Yeah. 
I think I think one factor in modern board games too is just the experience of how do you get people to know the rules of the board game? Ah, oh yes, <laughs> which is such a universal. Ex- hey, that's a that's a great example. How do you define a board game? It's a game where you have to explain the rules before you play it. Uh, I guess you have to do that with some sports too, so that kind of makes sense. But uh, but just this idea of like how do you go from a bunch of people who don't know the rules to a bunch of people who do know the rules? And prior to the internet, there was only a small number of board games because you pretty much always had to have somebody who knew the rules to explain the rules to other other people because you could read the instruction manual but who who wants to do that right that's no fun so uh i mean you can but but this idea that so many of the games are the piece is you and the piece progresses from the beginning to the end right uh whereas modern board games don't really have that framework as much might be attributable to the idea that well if you're making a board game and you don't have a way for people who play the game to learn how to play it what you want is to make a game that they already know how to play and so, oh, it's got a spinner, and you spin it, and then you do what the spinner says. So you roll the die, and you do what the die says. And these are all things that people already understand. But once you have this idea of like, well, we're going to play a board game. Here's uh, a web page where you can read about it. You know, you know, tonight or next week. And you know, everybody has access to every manual of every board game that's ever been made at their home already without asking for it, which is probably the a huge advantage to board game playing. Sorry, go yeah. ahead. Mark. E- even better, a YouTube video. Which yeah. explains it, and then you can you know see the pieces actually, and then see the progression of an actual round of the game, go through, which is far preferable to reading the manual, uh, and much more preferable to what I think is a common experience for people who play who play a board game, which is that one person knows how to play it, and they very excitedly and confusingly <laughs> try to describe uh, how to do it in their <laughs> own words, like trying to summarize um, the, the board game, and everybody starts out trying to listen intently, and then starts to drop off as they cannot follow along with it um and then everybody just says okay okay let's just like start playing it and, and figure it out that it'll i think is, is, a, is a, it'll, it'll make sense when we start playing yes <laughs> I, that is a ritual i think the, the, everybody here has, has gone through i don't know matt yeah. i'm gonna put you on the spot here matt like you because you don't you earlier you said that you really don't play a whole lot of, of board games like have you gone through this ritual is that like is uh is that one of the reasons why you don't like playing is like that initial sense of disorientation and confusion uh no, I well, sort of. I guess so, but I feel the dis- the the disorientation that I feel. So I guess my antenna is just up for the kind of the the sublim- sublimated homicidal urge in all the other couples <laughs> in the, in the board game. Sublimated. Night. <laughs> Have you you want to play this new game that I got from Germany? It's called Murder My Friends. It's great. Wait, I, I can't tell if you're being serious or if that's a joke. It's I've 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 uh, stated it in an extreme in an extreme way for for a comic effect but it just doesn't uh you know i don't know it it doesn't like the i i can imagine like being i don't know such a good bridge player or something like that and loving to play bridge with another couple where everyone is kind of at the the top of their game and and um you know where the the there's a lot of there's a lot of it that's about sort of style and and there's a kind of almost mutual appreciation or admiration um that can that can happen but yeah that it, it, even whether whether or not you know the game the kind of the 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 blunt instrument i don't i you know i don't know the sort of competitive uh, the competitive part uh, of it is not not something that I I particularly enjoy, right? Like like I don't enjoy trying to kill kill my friends, uh, even if it's on a even if it's on a hyper real candy colored board with uh, you know licor- licorice squares that you get stuck on and lollipop woods and peanut acres and 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 things like that. It just seems to uh, I don't know. It just seems to um what to gets gets too real for me i don't don't know i see i see through the board is i guess what i'm saying is this is this your west coast orientation coming through matt it's like uh you know a more cooperative mellow thing and it's just a hardened uh hard-bitten east coast yeah maybe or 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 maybe i'm just like you know fundamentally broken in my personality in some important <laughs> in some important way i mean let's let's also let's not uh forget that right like i i could be crazy yeah i mean the question that i immediately ask is like is it that you have no interest in defeating and humiliating your friends or is it that 
were you to lose, were it not to be you who murdered your friends, but your friends who murdered you, that would be an intolerable blow to your ego. Yeah, that's you do not right. Play. That's that's a that that if you sort of start taking that seriously, it becomes like a narcissistic injury that's very difficult to withstand, right? Because your sense of self is compromised somehow if you take. Uh, you know, if you take seriously, you know, the, the kind of the psychoanalytic reading of it as being a kind of sublimated, uh, you know, sublimated way to, to deal with rivalry and competition and, um, uh, and, you know, that sort of, that type of that type of feeling i mean this is what this is where i was going kind of early on in the podcast when i asked whether there was a cooperative uh, aspect to it even in the most rivalrous games because i think that like you know the the thing that we agree to unless your family is really messed up right like the thing that we agree to is that we're not going to punch each other over the candyland board you know right, and th- right. this is this is actually why children have to be supervised when they uh do this sort of thing a lot of the time, especially younger ones who don't necessarily have the impulse control because they don't, they sort of are bad at sublimation, right? Like they're, they're fully, they're not fully uh, invested in the allegory, you know, that that's um, tough for them to, to kind of commit to and, and not, not let it kind of spill over into real, into real things. And, and I guess like, I mean, I guess this is actually maybe a little more real than I had intended on being when we sat down and hit record on this podcast but i guess i just don't enjoy playing in that space though i i there's so many things about it that i like you know especially with the kind of the modern the modern genre of sort of highly intricate sort of very cool you know highly detailed finely wrought sort of games where there's so much to appreciate about craftsmanship and and design I love all that that crap, and it's uh, uh, e- even so kind of stepping into that space. It's not not something I particularly enjoy. Same reason why I don't want to go watch The Predator, which I'm sure is you know very exciting and stuff like that. But like, I just don't ever like movies where something something jumps out at me from from the shadows. You know, like when there's like tense music and then a, a big terror chord and something pops up on screen. I never ever 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 enjoy that experience. And I never want to uh, never want to go to a movie. And how much worse is it? I I finish by saying, how much worse is it when the thing that jumps up is your own id? (laughs) I I, I was going to go with the thing that jumps up is your friend who lays down like a triple word score. (laughs) <laughs> like and positively owns you in in, in Scrabble. Well, Scrabble I mean, we is just about... to destroy people. Now, now you're <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. As as someone who's played words with friends with Pete, like I can tell you that you know he he just lays way uh, he lays waste and then he salts the earth like the the Roman legion putting down a rebellion or something. Well, that's like a that. good comparison, I think. First of all, I think we'd be remiss to not suggest that you should play Dungeons and Dragons because that's a board game sort of where nobody was supposed to fight each other. Uh, but they probably do anyway. But at any rate, uh, the, we we should at least acknowledge and put and sort of put a pin in tabletop RPGs as sort of part of this sort of world. Uh, and we can save that conversation for another day. But I would suggest that there is a going back to the idea of the Roman Legion, of course, which had a rather um, one one of the from the modern day would suggest it as perhaps a pathological way of securing the uh, the relative safety of the people who live behind its protection, which was, you know, threatening the people in front uh, by, you know, if you don't keep moving forward, you know, we will kill you. Your own team will kill you. But the idea that competition among people within a group is to the advantage of the group because the group is going to need to at times compete against other groups And so and this is something I feel like I was socialized in at a very young age. And I don't know if maybe you guys identify with this or not. But the idea that, like, you should try to be good at things because at times in your life, you're going to get called upon to actually, like, fight for stakes. Like, not like S-T-A-A-K-S, but that would be awesome as well. Maybe maybe so, right? But, like, there is competition in the world between a group that you are both part of and another group that you really don't want to have win. And that this competition is kind of essential to how the world functions and and uh, 
And neglecting it is even worse than being bad at it, right? Like neglecting it is worse than losing because if you just neglect it, then the sort of stability that's introduced by this sense of conflict and the sort of uh, deterrence and and stability that it seems to afford in certain settings, that would fall away if you knew the other person wasn't going to fight back. Uh, you know, and I don't want to I don't want to get. Uh, too too uh, too real about it, but like, what if you had an election where one person felt free to say whatever they wanted about the other person, and the other person didn't fight back if they thought the first person was being mean, right? Like, what would happen, right? Like, uh, <laughs> I don't I'm know. Having this, I'm having this vision of of Pete, like, you know, we're playing Scrabble, and he does some ridiculous thing, like play XU, which is technically a word in Scrabble, on a triple word score, and gets thirty points, and then he sort of looks me in the eye and he says, "I." doing this because i love you because you have to learn <laughs> this will make you stronger <laughs> I, I by the way um my whiplash to candy lash which is about a uh, the ruthless training of a candy land master by jk simmons i've got that script anybody can purchase it uh, we're gonna put that up on auction right alongside my hip new board game uh, uh, the guy who created settlers of katea candy land. i don't know Mar- you grew up in the south did you did you grow up around a competitive mentality around kind of like group thinking and kind of uh your sort of duty to to fight on behalf of or or were you so outgrouped there uh because of your being a musician that you felt like it didn't uh <laughs> you weren't part of the team <laughs> well I, I i grew up adjacent to but uh distinctly outside of football culture in the south so the answer is yes the second thing that you said okay, well it, okay. it, there was that the first thing you said but i was outside of it because of the second thing you said but you were aware of it that it was a thing that existed yeah yeah i mean this it ultimately this entire conversation was about like you know different ways of sublimating violent urges and hyper competitive uh, urges that uh you know that, that society you know need, for, forces you to, to channel in into different ways and abstract ways um mostly because like you know having the the, the having them become real would be highly destructive i mean like yeah that that is that is it's so many things about uh, about life at the end of the day <laughs> Yeah. So a lot. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the, I mean, speaking of football culture, in terms of sort of sub of uh, war continuing, you know, the continuation of war by other means, right? Like the, I'll, I'll quote from no less holy scripture than the TV show Friday Night Lights, where the coach exhorts the team: "Men are coming to your house to kill you." Yeah. Uh, in a you know in a and pre- take your sheep right yeah in a pre <laughs> pre game they're not going to give you any bricks in exchange for them but, so uh, but but like war like Candyland is actually is a game where once you shuffle the deck it's all you know the the outcome is predetermined so I guess you could say war good God what is it good for <laughs> absolutely nothing. I think we I think we might have to leave it there because that's our uh, that's our time for board games. Quick before we go, we got a great comment on the last episode from John C. I want to uh, uh, read it. Um, and see if we have anything. He, he. by the way, if you have sleep problems, he recommends the uh, blue blocker uh, glasses, the laser safety glasses. And uh, uh, it's, I, I definitely, I have the software that turns my screen orange after a certain, after a certain time of night. And I, I don't, I couldn't tell you whether it's useful or, or not. I mean, I haven't done a controlled experiment with sleeping in it, but it, it seems, uh, it seems anecdotally good. And it's, it also is like, it, it provides a cue it provides a kind of physiological cue that i'm that i'm up too late uh if the if the screen kind of turns to this you know red blazing blazing red color temperature low color temperature uh i guess but here's what john says a possibly interesting point on relationships to people who have created art the history of general semantics gets weird uh Grammar and Scientology weird, he says. But one of Alfred Korzybski's ideas you can find in The Manhood of Humanity is the idea that humans are distinct from other animals because we're able to aggregate resources and communicate across time, at least in one 
direction. I like thinking about things in these terms that there are at least aspects of an increasing number of people's thoughts that we can engage with whenever we want and use them for uh, a springboard for our own thoughts. And he uh, he points out also that uh, Krasipsky was also the the map is not the territory uh, author. Fun fact, the Institute of um, the Institute of General Semantics was moved to Lakeville, Connecticut, to Northwestern Connecticut when they lost their lease in Chicago. And so he ended his days in, in uh, the kind of the rural part of, of Northwestern Connecticut. This was in response to uh, our, uh, Pete and my meditation on dragon bookmarks, uh, being alone with your thoughts, repose, the English romantic poets, uh, and the desire not to rag on, on technology but it seems it seems like especially since uh, uh, he points out that that Krasipsky's book is available John points out that Krasipsky's book is available on um, Project Gutenberg that technology has a lot to do with the ability to aggregate information uh, across time so anyway, John, thank you very much for, for your comment. If you would like to leave a comment on the Overthinking It podcast, uh, go ahead and go to the website, click through to the show notes for this podcast. You'll find a place where you can leave your comment there with your, uh, what are some uh, uh, fun comments? Your, your favorite board game, your least favorite board game, your favorite uh, uh, method of, of sublimating your murderous impulses towards, towards your friends and loved ones. Uh, whatever you like, you can go ahead and do it. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much uh, to Mark and to Pete and Jordan for podcasting. You can find us next week on the Overthinking Podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. Okay, guys, the way that this game works, right, is that we all get in the Slack chat, and then uh, we each get a token. Okay. okay? And then when okay. um, when the quail uh Do we get sparks. to pick the token? Hold on. Wait, what? Oh, all right. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, and, and the way you pick the token yeah. is by um, spinning the dial, but only counterclockwise. And, Wait, uh, oh, guys, guys, guys. We need to talk about pizza toppings. All right. So we're definitely getting pepperoni, but who else wants what? <laughs> I want sausage. I want sausage. <laughs> and I want to have the, tim- the thimble hat with the machine gun as my piece. J- Jiffy, <laughs> Jiffy WTF. Jiffy board game. Jiffy, <laughs> stay on topic. <laughs>